0: Hello, I'm Hayley Jarrick, CEO of the Supply Chain Sustainability School. This episode of the People, Planet, Profit podcast was recorded as part of a video series. In this theoretical integrated design forum, architects, engineers, material suppliers, builders, and facility managers tell us things they wish the others knew about sustainable properties. We hope you enjoy. Hi Lauren, thanks for joining us today. Um, I'm going to throw to you quickly just to introduce yourself for everyone who doesn't know you.
1: Great, thanks Hayley. So um, my name is Lauren Howe and I'm a Senior Materials Engineer at Arup. Um, So I started in our London office five years ago and moved over to Australia three years ago Um, and so I work across uh, anything to do with materials, so a lot of work in um, investigations, durability and condition assessments, but also the other side of the work I do is in sustainability of materials and embodied carbon.
0: Wow, so just a couple of things. Like <laughs> you mustn't be very busy at all this day. With all of that work going on. Um, and of course, we wanted to hear to give a perspective on engineers. Um, and like I said, we are asking the others to give their perspectives as well. But to kick things off, I was wondering if you can give us um, the perspective of what engineers wish architects knew about sustainable properties. Great. So um,
1: I'll start with a simple one. So firstly, for architects, um, if we're looking at structures, we, and if we're looking at wanting to build less, then we need to... Um, increased structural efficiency, which generally means reducing the spans, which in turn will mean more columns. So, um, yeah, as an architect, understanding that actually increasing the number of columns will often reduce the carbon impact to a point. (laughs) And then moving over to facades, Obviously, having a high glazing percentage in your facade is important for natural light and connection to outside. There's many studies that show the importance, especially in the workplace, for that. However, um, high glazing percentage increases the facade gain significantly, which have the, which are the majority of the mechanical loads on our heating and cooling systems. So we do need to find that sweet spot between uh, glazing thermal performance and heating and cooling requirements and maybe even move away from fully glazed buildings across our skyscrapers in Australia would be great to see. (laughs) And then finally, I would say um, probably reducing environmental impact does not just mean choosing a more sustainable product. Um, We need to consider the built form, for example, does the space actually uh, need certain materials? Do we need the suspended ceiling, or do we need to clad the columns? And so, we like for we would say to an architect, um, we want to dematerialise. So, ask yourselves: Is this actually required?
0: I think that's a big one. So I think that you're right, some people fall into certain habits of just including things for completely aesthetic reasons and have no other functional performance. And I think they're the sort of the really, you know, they're the quick wins when it comes to um, dematerializing buildings. And, of course, um I think for just for everybody else's benefit around the place um, that don't sort of understand what de- dematerializing might be, um, it comes along with a lot of benefits because, of course, if you don't have to buy the product to put on there, you don't have to make the product, then you don't have to mine the materials to make the product, then you don't have to all of the emissions and that go along with um, converting those raw materials into the finished products don't need to be made. You also then don't need to account for you know, dematerializing at the uh, – deconstructing the building at the end of life and then trying to reuse or recycle it. So it actually takes the problem out of the entire life cycle if you can just dematerialize, and has a massive impact throughout the whole of life cycle, um, not just – um, for one little element of that. So I think that that's probably one key area that a lot of people don't really appreciate, the true impact um, that that's happening. happening. Um, and, yeah, I think, you, you know, it's a massive challenge to throw out there of having a high scrapers without just fully glazing. I think if anyone looks in any capital city around Australia, we have this current, um, yeah, the current trend will be the everything's got windows. Um, and I think that that will be sort of, you know, everyone looking at the old red bit, brick buildings of the past or the old sandstone buildings of a certain era, I think that will certainly be a trademark of the last decade or so when it comes to construction and hopefully we can evolve um, from that because, like you said, it just has a massive impact on heating and cooling loads. Um, so how can we just finding that balance um, for the glazing of the natural light versus heating and cooling loads will be really important for moving forward. So if we move past um, architects... Um, and let's talk about what engineers wish that material suppliers knew about sustainable properties. Great. Right. So um,
1: firstly, I'd like to start with uh, we do try and are trying to get you as material suppliers involved as early as we can in the design. Um, I think this is not so relevant for properties but um, I know for infrastructure projects I'm working on where we've got large project alliances this really enables us to um, get the material suppliers involved at an early stage. For buildings we don't tend to have such as set, the same setup um, and so as engineers we want to get you involved but sometimes we <laughs> we can't and we have to base it on like performance based specifications and so on um but that doesn't mean we can't have the conversations to start to understand what you actually products you have and so on which then leads me to when we ask about environmental impacts of your products we're looking for more information than just what is on your safety data sheet um so i don't want to just know about your hazardous materials that is not what we mean when we say environmental impact So as designers and engineers, we are looking for uh, transparency in the building products that you're provided. So we want to quickly understand the way that we can quickly understand um, the mechanical properties and application requirements from your product data sheets. We also want to understand where your product is coming from, how it's been made, if it contains, um, yeah, what it contains and if there's any, for example, red list chemicals or materials, and for especially for um, when we start to move into looking at indoor air quality, we need to understand things like volatile organic compounds (VOCs) and formaldehydes. And then, taking that on to actually the end of life aspect, if your product can't be traced to know what it contains, then it may likely end up in landfill. Um, so. From your point of view, we want to see new and novel ways that products can be tracked, um, such as material passports.
0: I think that that's key too. So having those stewardship schemes in, not just assuming that they're going to dump it on you and it's now your problem to deal with until you dump it on somebody else, that whole um, that relationship between the supply chain is definitely changing. Um, and there's, like you said, that transparency is going both ways, right? So you kind of, everybody wants to see what's happening up and down the entire supply chain. Um, and certainly those relationships between um, that vertical stream are, are getting more and more transparent as people are working together. Um, so I think that, yeah, call out to anyone looking to make a product that goes into um, anything that goes towards a building, whether it's in structurally or just even in the interior. Fit out and design. Um, If you don't know where all of your raw materials come from, you need to find out. Um, And if you don't know exactly what impacts you're having during your manufacturing, and also what you're then passing on to people who are inhabiting those buildings, you need to find out. And it will be a ticket to the game, right? Like, like you said, like you know, you if you're not going to put something in your buildings that you you design and engineer if it's just you don't know what's there anymore. It's like gone of the days when you can sort of put them in there and cross your fingers and hope. so the the emphasis is is being put on material suppliers to know that and having that responsibility for the chain of custody right the way through um as especially as people become more circular you know you're right you want to be able to reuse things as they move forward you can't reuse them if you don't have that sort of transparency there you can't recycle them if um, people have transformed them in a way that means they can't be recycled Mm -hmm. and not just theoretically but there has to actually be a process in place that can actually be recycled if you want to claim recyclability so i think you're right there's a there's a lot happening in the space of material suppliers and i think you called out a few really key things there and i would just
1: add there as well um if as much as a material supplier, you want to understand a bit more of maybe the future and what the kind of information that will be asked more. Um, I think living building challenge is a good way to, it's obviously, it is a challenge. It is the extreme end of, it is very difficult, um, but there is a uh, materials petal, which is one of their credits and um, it details Yeah, lots of things which, um, as the client and as engineers, we would be asking. And so one of them is, yeah, Red List Materials. Um, And so it's a huge amount. It is a huge ask of things which often material suppliers are not prepared to share. But I think it gives a good uh, background as to the kind of things that people want to start to know. Um, And I know companies like Google in, I know there was a project in the UK where they, wanted to know everything that was in every product coming into their new building, so companies are moving towards that big com- yeah big companies
0: Thank you all right so now let's let's talk about builders so uh, what are things that engineers wish that builders knew about sustainable properties
1: okay um, so from a materials engineer perspective, I would say um, quality and hence the durability of work is actually one of the most sustainable things that you can do um, so too often I inspect assets that are degrading or failing far sooner than their predicted service life due to shortcuts usually undertaken by the industry due to uh, trying to balance budget and time constraints and so simply put I would say um Yeah, we're looking for quality in construction and application of appropriate quality control procedures. That's my first point. And then secondly, um, Hayley, you touched on this earlier around designing for deconstruction. Um, So if we're designing for deconstruction, we're trying to design to allow for elements to be taken apart and recovered at their end of life. Or the end of life of that asset so they can be used again and so this means we want to avoid the use of adhesives and sealants where possible which are a builder's best friend. (laughs) Um, So as builders if you do see alternative ways to build an element uh, or component which allows for greater recovery at the end of life then please share this because uh, often as designers we'll be putting forward ideas but we're not the ones who are actually building it and know how is that what's actually happening in practice, so you're sitting on a lot of information and knowledge and I think can really contribute to the, especially the designing for deconstruction part. Um, And I'd also say, um, yeah, as engineers, we'd like builders to better understand the complexity and the consequences of them making product substitutions. So often we see materials that are not so suitable to be uh, installed end up getting installed, which introduces risks. So this might be as simple as um, an insulation product being replaced with one with a foil backing, which is fine, but then it may not properly be installed, which then introduces risks around uh, condensation, for example. So then affecting things like passive house. And one very small one, which I spoke to our mechanical engineers about this, um, which they wanted to get across. Um, so, quite a technical point reg- regarding refrigerants in air conditioning systems and heat pumps. But I've been told that if you change um, your refrigerant from a your typical HFC refrigerant to a low. Global warming potential refrigerant such as a HFO, then you can actually achieve up to ninety nine percent reductions in your carbon impact just of the refrigerant, and so over the whole of life of the building, that cat does actually have pretty big impacts as the mechan yeah refrigerant and the mechanical part can actually account for up to uh, like twenty five percent. Wow,
0: that's huge! And it, like you said, it's good to get. Sometimes when you go, you're like, you're right, I don't understand any of the technicality behind that. But, you know, you can just imagine, you can see that there's a group of um, mechanical engineers out there that are just going, this is such a simple one, I just wish that they would do this, right? It's like, you literally swap this for this and it has this massive impact and I don't know why everyone isn't doing it. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. And it,
1: in doing so, and yeah. So I spoke to Tim, i a mechanical engineer, about this, who has been presenting, I think he might have presented at Met Club. He's presented at ERA, I think, on it and... Yeah, for hear it seems very simple. Um, I think it, there's obviously some equipment changes, so it's not as simple, completely simple, but um, yeah, I think it's something which could have a quite a big impact.
0: So now let's switch to the people who have to run the facility after it's all been constructed. Um, and so, these are kind of, you know, to give everyone who's listening a the, the perspective, it's kind of like you get designed, you get engineered, you're great, then you physically turn it into a building when you build it. And then, on um, practical completion, you hand it over usually to building managers or facility managers or asset managers, whatever you want to call them, um, and they get stuck with trying to operate the facility for the for the whole lifetime of that facility and do all of the maintenance um, upgrades when things fail, do all sorts of other fun stuff, and also deal with um, people who live there, whether they own the property or they're tenanted into the property, um, and managing all of their day-to-day. So, what things do engineers wish that facility managers knew about sustainable properties? Um, So I'd say the first thing is uh,
1: to it would be great to understand the full uh, building system, which then enables you to actually tackle the low-hanging fruit in relation to, uh, say, energy efficiency. So a tool like the Passive House planning package enables you to actually holistically look at your whole building and identify efficiencies that can be made. So, for example, you may um, have a plan to replace all the LED lights Oh, no, to install LED lights or replace all the current light bulbs, um, not knowing that actually in your building the roof does not is not properly insulated and actually you may receive, you could get greater gains in uh, doing that. So yeah, I'd say firstly just looking at the building holistically from an energy perspective um, and then also implementing effective asset management systems, um, which many will have, but Um, I work all the time with many facilities managers when I'm doing facade inspections and I'd say generally there can be a lack of uh, historic data. Um, So yeah, just having logs and data around what the elements actually are in your building and when it was built and um, what has been maintained and the type of stuff that's been done already um, as this wouldn't enable us to enhance the durability of the assets and minimize need for large-scale remediation works over the design life?
0: Yeah I think that they're key ones I think that this it's it's funny talking like as I've at the moment, I'm the only one who's been privy to everybody else's conversations <laughs> in this whole spectrum. But I think really sort of sharing that data and information up and down the stream is really pivotal to this, right? So um, facility managers sometimes don't get that handover and they really want that data. Um, but then you said it's right. it's And then, okay, that's something they want of somebody else. But in the same time, they need to be managing and having those asset management logs, um, doing the maintenance on the buildings when they're required to be done, or... At least documenting when they haven't been done, so that you can understand exactly what's happening and and maintaining those, um, and to be able to, to be able to just you know whatever that may be. And of course, facility management is such a broad field, right? Like you know, managing in in industry warehouse. Um, compared to a um, like a residential apartment block compared to an office block all have very different challenges um, and very different systems and and things that need to occur in those. Um, And as engineers, of course, you're very privy to that because it's like how people use a building plays a massive part in terms of doing all of the assessments on um, durability and when you have to heat and cool them and um, the energy efficiency impacts of using those facades in different places. So um, it's really interesting to hear that that your perspective on that of just calling it out and seeing what they can do because I think that's a key one as well. So thanks yeah. very much for bringing that up. And yeah.
1: that I think it's, um, yeah, we just need to move to like a data-driven approach and become a lot more savvy with um just yeah, flows of data through the project lifecycle. Um, yeah, and there are lots of tools to enable. Like we can move away from spreadsheets. We can start to have nice dashboards to quickly be able to actually see um, everything and pull up the required documents as is required. Um, yeah, it's exciting. There's a lot of a lot that can a lot to come in the future with, especially in the facilities management space.
0: Yeah digital is so exciting across the board like even just through the whole through the whole system and we could completely nerd out on all the digital enhancements that are making everybody's life easier from you know building integrated management design and LCA design included in all of that all the way through to the Passports and digital systems that are emerging to try and track, and um, not to mention all of the blockchain requirements on tracking materials data to ensure we really know where all of that stuff comes from. So, the digital space is really exciting um, and sort of going to be key to maintaining that transparency and improving the efficiency of all of these areas. So, yeah, we can, I'll completely nerd out on that at another time. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us today, Lauren. Your insights have been really amazing. Thank you, Hayley. Excellent. And to everybody else, thanks for joining us um, today, and I'll catch you next time. Bye.